Hi, this is Kutsianaki, and I'm excited to welcome you to the first episode of Down to the Struts. Today, we'll listen in on my conversation with Arielle Silverman. Arielle is a consultant who works to promote a fuller understanding of the disability experience. She participates in research and training designed to improve public perceptions and understanding of disability. We talked about what it means to truly understand disability, the history of the disability rights movement, and how much further we have to go to achieve full inclusion for disabled people. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I'm looking forward to sharing Arielle's wisdom with you. Okay, let's get down to it. Um, well, thank you for joining me today. Um, so I was hoping you could start off by just introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about your disability journey and how it's affected the work that you're doing now. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. My name is Arielle Silverman, and I, as far as my disability journey, I've been totally blind since birth. So I've always identified as a person with a disability, and I never thought of being blind as any kind of negative part of myself. It was just a part of who I am, much as, um, you know, my being female or my height or my skin color or my hair color is. Um, But I realized that eventually as I was growing up that other people thought of blindness as a very bad thing. And in fact, blindness is one of the most feared diseases that people fear. Um, So I had to go through a process of kind of understanding why or accepting the fact that a lot of people think of blindness as a bad thing or think that I'm less capable because of my blindness. And then as part of that process, I started interacting with other blind people. First, I had peers at a local blindness day camp that I attended, and then I joined the National Federation of the Blind. So I started meeting blind people of all ages from all over the world and um, developing that community. And I started to recognize that there are a lot of issues that are affecting not only blind people, but people with all different types of disabilities that are preventing us from achieving full equality. Um, I actually decided to study social psychology specifically because I wanted to better understand where a lot of these inequalities come from and what kinds of systems and beliefs and emotions kind of maintain the second class status of people with disabilities, you know, with the understanding that where behavior comes from is the first step to figuring out how to change it. So that was my motivation for completing a doctorate in social psychology. I got my doctorate in 2014 from the University of Colorado Boulder, and then I did two years of postdoctoral research in the rehab medicine department at the University of Washington. So that was a little bit of a different perspective, but we focused on like positive psychology and resilience and living with physical disabilities. So I started to, my work started to expand kind of beyond blindness to other different types of disabilities. And I realized as I was doing this work that I didn't particularly want to spend the rest of my career in the ivory tower talking to other academics. I wanted to talk to people who could actually directly benefit from my research. So I started writing plain language summaries of research to make it more digestible to members of the public. I also started doing trainings kind of locally for groups that invited me to do trainings for them on inclusion and eventually decided to set up my own freelance business doing a combination of 
disability-related research and disability-related training. And so that's what I've been doing for the past four years since I've moved to the Washington, D.C. area with my husband is working on different kinds of research projects that involve learning more about the disability experience and then also providing training, especially to nonprofits, um, but really any type of organization that wants to figure out how to be more inclusive of people with disabilities. Thanks for that, Arielle. And I, uh, you know, I remember you telling me about some work you were doing in training airport personnel. And I remember being very personally grateful uh, as a as a blind, low vision person myself. Uh, traveling and navigating through airports is one of the most challenging things. And not because airports are particularly complicated or difficult, but because of the you know, the lack of training of airport personnel and, and just kind of bad design, which we'll talk about in future episodes. But um, I remember just being personally grateful for all of that work you were doing um, to, to train uh, airport folks about how to, how to work effectively with people with different types of disabilities. So the, the name of your consulting company is Disability Wisdom. Can you tell us what, what is Disability Wisdom? Well, that's a great question. And I see, I like the phrase disability wisdom because it has two meanings. So you can think of the more literal meaning of wisdom as kind of experience, kind of insider knowledge that people gain over a long period of time. And so the goal of disability wisdom as a practice is to cultivate and synthesize all of the wisdom that the firsthand wisdom that people with disabilities gain in our everyday lives. Like so much of policy and practice is influenced by people without disabilities making decisions on our behalf, but we need to have a more direct involvement in the policies affecting us and the wisdom that we've developed through problem solving and figuring out how to access the world. It needs to be cultivated and shared with other people in our community as well as outside of our community. So that's kind of the first meaning is wisdom through the lived experience of people with disabilities. But also the term wise was used by the sociologist Irving Goffman to describe people who are part of the majority group, but who have important relationships with members of minority groups. So specifically he wrote about gay people in the 1950s who were very highly stigmatized and they would refer to kind of their straight allies as the wise or wise people because they treated them as if they did not have a stigma. So one of the main objectives of disability wisdom is to help educate allies, people without disabilities, to learn how to be wiser and to build empowering, respectful relationships with people with disabilities and treating us as if we were members of the majority group. So that's kind of the second meaning of disability wisdom. That's really helpful and is a perfect segue into my next question, which is this podcast will really focus on on two things. And I will ask you two questions that kind of relate to both in your in your own experience. But one is why, you know, answering the question of why should we factor in disability when we're trying to improve the structures and systems that affect our lives? And the second aspect is 
what does the disability identity, how can that help us to inform how we think about other types of systemic inequality? So to that first point, you've done a lot of work training different types of groups on how to be inclusive of disabled people and how to factor in disability-related issues when developing policies or designing structures and systems. And so to your mind, you know, what's the value of that? Why should we care about factoring in disability when we design things in the world around us? Well, so I think a lot of people don't realize how common disability is. And by some estimates, up to one in four, one in five people worldwide has a disability. And then, of course, if you factor in all of the immediate family members of people with disabilities, it's a huge percentage of the population who is directly impacted by either living with a disability or being in like a very significant relationship with a disabled person. Um, so, I mean, quite frankly, it's important to care about people with disabilities because otherwise like a lot of people get left out. And so from a business perspective, if your business is inaccessible, your customer base is going to be significantly reduced. There are also benefits a little bit less direct of hiring people with disabilities in terms of creating better morale, having more diversity of opinions and experiences. And that also is parallel with the importance of inclusion of other minority groups who have different experiences. And a lot of innovations come from are things that started out as disability related accommodations. And then it turned out that they had benefits for other people. So a couple of like really obvious examples, curb cuts were originally intended for wheelchair users and they're actually essential for wheelchair users to be able to navigate in a lot of places, but they're also really handy if you're pulling a stroller or a grocery cart. Text messaging, I believe, started out as an accommodation for deaf people and a lot of the talking, um, like talking GPS, uses a lot of the same technology that blind people use to access computers. So when we develop innovations to help people with disabilities access things, we're actually promoting access for everyone. I really like the example of the curb cuts. That's a great one. And then, you know, I didn't even really think about it until you said it now, but there are moments where if you're driving and you can't see your phone, being able to hear the auditory instructions from say, for example, Google Maps is, is hugely beneficial. I mean, there are so many instances where sighted people are not able to use their eyes because they're doing something else or there's lots of reasons why having a sort of non-sighted way to do something, for example, or a, a way to do something that doesn't involve using your legs is beneficial for mm -hmm. others. Um, so I, yeah, I, some of those I, I thought of, but others I hadn't. So those are, those are really interesting examples. So on the, on the second point, you know, in addition to being a person with a disability, which is a way that I identify as well, you know, we, we have so many other aspects of our identities. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those other aspects of your identity, what they are, how they've had an impact on your life in ways that are related or sometimes even not related to your disability. So my other, I guess I would say minority group identity is that I'm Jewish. 
and only about 2% of Americans identify as Jews. So that's definitely a, a minority identity. And that means that the intersection between my two identities of being disabled and Jewish or being blind and Jewish is like really small. So I think one interesting thing when you have two or more either minority identities or, you know, negatively stereotyped, stigmatized identities is that sometimes they can compete with each other. Um, and so I was reflecting on yesterday, actually, I was looking at a blog post that I wrote about this, and I was reflecting on a couple of times when I was in, especially as a child and adolescent, where I was in a group. Um, so like, for example, I went to a Jewish youth group retreat for a weekend, and we went to a place, we went to an arcade that was completely inaccessible to me as a blind person, because all the games were, you know, video games or go-kart races, um, very difficult for me to participate. So I felt isolated from my Jewish peers, even though we shared the Judaism in common, there were times during the weekend where I felt like very close with them when we were singing Jewish songs and doing like Israeli things and stuff like that. Then there were other times where I just felt completely isolated because of my disability. And then conversely, there have been times where I've been with blind peers where I have a very strong disability connection with them, but then our like religious and cultural beliefs are completely different or they celebrate, they all celebrate Christmas and I didn't grow up celebrating Christmas. And so like during Christmas time, I would feel isolated because of that. And I think sometimes when that happens, you can have a competition between the two identities. Like you feel like you have to choose one or the other so that you don't feel left out. And what's been really cool actually is that some of my favorite consulting clients have been Jewish organizations like the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington and the Foundation for Jewish Camp and the Union for Reform Judaism and a couple of synagogues that I've worked with um, because they're very much dedicated to promoting full inclusion as an imperative, as a way of improving their entire practice and not just kind of as a charity thing. Um, and it's been very healing for me because I both of my identities are celebrated in those kinds of environments. And I can really feel like the next generation of disabled Jews might have a better time reconciling those two identities maybe than I did when I was growing up. Um, so I think that's something that can happen if you're disabled and you also have some other minority group identity. I mean, I know that in disability spaces, a lot of work still needs to be done to be more inclusive to LGBTQ and, you know, racial and ethnic minorities and gender minorities. And then by the same token, a lot of times, like the diversity groups that try to promote diversity for some of those other identities don't always understand disability. I had a friend who was taking some kind of diversity training through her employer and the training was completely inaccessible. It, there was like a video with text and she's blind and she couldn't access the text. So she was left out of, you know, this diversity and inclusion training and this kind of thing happens quite a bit. And so we need to be more mindful about making disability spaces more inclusive to other groups and then making those other group spaces more accessible, inclusive to people with disabilities. So much of what you just said really resonated with me. I, you know, I'm Muslim and South Asian American and also identify as being, having low vision or being blind. And I feel the same. I don't know. I maybe know one other person who's both South Asian and blind. I think we both might know the same person actually. <laughs> um, so that's really helpful. But 
I definitely feel like I have to do a little bit of code switching between those two communities. And also sometimes, and I'm curious to hear whether you've had this experience, you know, when you're in a workplace and or you're struggling, you know, I've, I've worked in, I haven't really worked as much in sort of a disability workspace. I'm, I'm an attorney, but I've done lots of other different types of work that are not necessarily disability related and in those environments. I'm never sure, you know, is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I have a disability when I'm being treated a different way or feel that I'm being uh, discriminated against or excluded, you know, based on what factor that's happening and how those things interrelate with one another? I'm curious if you've also felt similar sort of not being sure of what the source of any sort of exclusionary behavior or discriminatory behavior is coming from. Um, yeah, the only example I can think of sort of is a little bit different, but I think as a woman, I've definitely been socialized to be more kind of gracious toward people who are being overly helpful and toward men who are being overly helpful. And I think I definitely experienced more of kind of like the patronizing, like grabbing and um, condescending behavior from men than I necessarily would if, if I were a guy. A lot of my male friends don't have quite the same level of that kind of interaction. So I think that's one way that, that the identities can intersect. But I think also like blind men probably have challenges that I didn't have related to like not being accepted in like sports activities or not like not being able to drive and not being stigmatized in certain kinds of roles that they might fulfill. So, you know, I think either gender identity can intersect with ableism in interesting ways. Yeah, I think uh, for men uh, who are, have different types of disabilities, I think they're not complying with kind of the gender expectations of a man in some way um, because we our concepts of ability are so tied to like what is considered able for like a cisgender white male, which I think is really interesting. But uh, but that is a topic for for an entire entire podcast episode probably. <laughs> so we might have to have you back for that. <laughs> So I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Um, speaking of topics that could take up an entire podcast episode or maybe even an entire series, you know, we could spend a long time talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act, but I was hoping that you might be able to share with me and with the listeners a little bit about what is that legislation, you know, how did it change the game for people with disabilities and just give us a little background about, about the ADA. Well, so of course, if we go back a century or two on American history, and a lot of these patterns were duplicated around the world, people with disabilities were often placed in institutions like nursing homes or group homes and not really expected to participate in their communities. And then around kind of the middle of the 20th century, disabled self-advocates started to unify. And it's interesting to look at kind of some of the trends in medicine that ended up kind of increasing the rates of certain types of disabilities, like polio outbreaks in the in the 40s and 50s, like led to a lot of people who were survivors of polio and were physically disabled were kind of ringleaders of some of those movements. And there was kind of a parallel in the blind community with um, more premature infants being revived or being saved, but then developing blindness. And then of course, after World War II, there were also a lot of veterans with disabilities. So the 
disabled voice kind of changed and it got louder around the middle of the 20th century and disabled people started advocating for rights to participate in the community and rights to access public transportation, to get jobs, to go to college. And the, so there were a couple of laws that were really landmark laws. The Rehabilitation Act of 1973 had some provisions in it that kind of predated the ADA, but that required entities that were receiving federal government funds to be accessible to people with disabilities and not to discriminate against people with disabilities. So like colleges and universities that were funded by the federal government, um, federal government offices, of course, and other sorts of agencies had to be accessible. Uh, but of course, that didn't cover a lot of private businesses that disabled people could not literally could not access, could not get into in their wheelchairs or could not access the information that was provided. Um, and so there was a lot of additional advocacy to bring about the ADA in 1990, which basically requires any entity that is serving the public. And there's some exceptions like religious organizations often can be exempt, uh, but most of what we would consider kind of businesses or service organizations that are serving public are required to be accessible to provide reasonable accommodations. So that means, for example, if I go into a grocery store, I can't find the items that I need without a sighted person who can read the labels. So the store has to make a reasonable effort to accommodate me by providing a staff member to help me with that. Um, instead of saying like, no, you need to bring somebody with you. Of course, also a lot of businesses had to make structural changes so that people with mobility disabilities could access them. And discrimination is also prohibited on the basis of disability. So this kind of extends other civil rights laws that protect racial, ethnic, sexual, gender minorities from discrimination are now extended to disabled people. Um, so employers can't say, we won't hire you because of your disability service organizations like child care centers can't turn away a disabled child merely because they have a disability and so on. Now, of course, there's a lot of limitations of the ADA, which I think is the next question, but in theory, the ADA is meant to prevent discrimination on the basis of disability. So that's really an interesting background and thanks for kind of summing that up. There's so much in there, but you distilled it in a, in a really succinct way. Um, so I really appreciate that. So essentially what you're saying is the ADA made sure that disabled people had to, to have access to the things that able people have access to, right? So now, you know, fast forwarding to today, and I think we're having this conversation in a lot of other contexts just around the country and the world. Um, but when it comes to disability, what do you think the ADA left out? And if you could design an ADA 2.0, would it look similar? Would it add on to what the current iteration of the ADA has done? Or would you sort of change things more fundamentally in terms of how we think about disability and inclusion now? Yeah, so I'm not a legal expert, so I'm not sure how many of these things are necessarily things that can be added to the law, or if it's more a question of what changes require fixes other than legislation. 
because you can say legislatively that businesses have to be rebuilt for accessibility, which um, has not happened to the extent that it should if the law were properly enforced. You can use legislation to ban discrimination on the basis of disability, but it still happens a lot. And my understanding is that when people discriminate, they often do it in a more um, surreptitious way. So it's harder to identify that they are discriminating on the basis of disability. So pre-ADA, someone would just say, oh, you're blind, you can't do that job. Sorry, better luck next time. Whereas now an employer might not say that, but they might say, oh, the, we've already filled the position or we're not hiring for this position anymore. And in fact, they are making a discriminatory judgment. There are also cases where language will be written into the job descriptions, basically saying that ability is an essential function of the job, even if it's not. And that's a way to kind of get around the ADA. Um, so a couple of things come to mind. One is I think the ADA sometimes kind of scares people more than it actually creates reform. So for example, employers are not permitted to ask questions about disability in job interviews. And it's understandable why that provision is there because it helps to prevent kind of blatant discrimination. And of course, applicants have a right not to disclose that they have disabilities, but sometimes that prohibition, I think also leads to a lot of assumptions being made about disabilities. So the employer isn't allowed to ask any questions, but they feel uncomfortable, they don't know what to do, and then they end up just not making the hire. And so I wonder if there can be a way to allow dialogue to occur between an employer and an employee about disability-related needs um, without having to go through a lot of bureaucracy on the part of the employee so that some of those misconceptions can be resolved. I think the main issue is that prejudice is still going to exist. We can pass all the laws in the world, but people are still going to have prejudices and they're just going to find more creative ways to act on them. So I think we need to approach, I don't know if we need kind of a companion um, process in addition to the ADA, but in addition to banning discrimination legally, we need to find a way to educate the non-disabled public about disabilities. And it really kind of amazes me, for example, how many parents have a disabled child and just have no idea what to expect and are just shocked and surprised that they had a disabled child. And if they had been kind of educated on how common disabilities are, how normal they are as a part of society and, you know, just basic principles of inclusion, the parents wouldn't be so overwhelmed. Employers wouldn't be so overwhelmed when they're confronted with disabilities. So I wonder if even making some kind of universal disability education in high school curriculum or in the college curriculum, I think ideally in the high school curriculum, because a lot of people who don't go to college still might end up having a disabled child or having a disabled person want to work for them. But we need to get the education more systematic and we need to have it be run by people with disabilities so that people can let go of a lot of these automatic, implicit kind of discomforts that they feel about disabilities. If I think about it, in school, we, you know, you learn about the civil rights movement and you learn about the women's rights movement and the disability rights movement was a movement. It was it was quite an extensive movement, but we don't learn about the ADA in school the way we learn about the Voting Rights Act. I don't know if you had that in your curriculum. I don't even remember when I first learned about the ADA, but I didn't learn about 
most of the disability activism until I was in college and most of what I initially learned was blindness centric because that was information that I sought out about blind people. And I didn't even know that there was this whole cross disability movement until fairly recently. I'm a person who lost their vision later in life and was raised by an entirely, you know, my entire family is sighted and, and there's no one else in my family that has the condition that I had that resulted in my vision loss. And so I really was sort of not acclimated to a lot of this. I got rehabilitation services through the state where I live, but you know, didn't come to this until much later in my life either. So I, I mean, I think for the two of us, that in and of itself is sort of interesting. And as, as someone who is a lawyer themselves, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by training, and I, I would agree with you wholeheartedly that it's more than laws and it's about cultural shift. There needs to be legal protection, but also a cultural shift for things to really move. And so to that end, I'm curious what you think about, what do you view as sort of the difference, if any, between accommodation and inclusion? Because accommodation often, in my experience, and I'm curious to hear about yours, has often been about, here's a separate way for you to do something. And it's not exactly the same, but it's a way and it's, you know, less it might not be as good. It feels a little separate, but equal, um, or separate, but not equal, I guess, in a way. And so, for example, if you have a structure and there's stairs going to the entrance, but the wheelchair entrance is in like a really inconvenient location. Yes, you've provided access to the building, but you've sort of put the access in a place that's difficult to get to in the first place and also kind of segregated from the mainstream use of the structure. So I'm curious whether we have further to go and, and how we can get from accommodation to actual meaningful inclusion, if you think there's a difference between those two things. Well, accommodation is kind of like a band-aid, like it's just kind of temporarily fixing it for one case. And sometimes that's the best you can do in the short term. It's interesting to think about it if the roles were reversed, right? If something were only accessible to blind people, like maybe an audio described movie that was only in audible format, and then say maybe my husband who's sighted wanted to watch the movie with us, we would have to figure out how to accommodate him by adding on some kind of visual component so that he could enjoy it as well as we could enjoy it. And that seems kind of silly, but really accommodation is just making something available to whoever's in the minority of the group. Um, I think whereas inclusion ideally is making something equally accessible to everyone. And so in your example, I think just having a ramp and stairs kind of side by side, or even just having the ramp would be an instance of full inclusion or presenting something in a way that's screen reader accessible, that's also visually accessible without having to make a lot of last minute changes for specific cases. I know also with deafness, a lot of deafness related accommodations can be expensive, like ASL interpreters or captioners that require a lot of human capital. But providing something like a transcript of a presentation that's written by the presenter and that's just, just kind of automatically available for everyone without having to be requested ahead of time, that would be a more inclusive solution to that problem. Yeah, so the idea is thinking ahead, considering those design elements from the beginning of or at the inception of a project or a design. Right. Be the best way. Yeah, exactly. And the idea is that if you invest a little bit of effort up front, you won't have to go back in later and keep fixing it.
Right, exactly. And I think in some instances, we're getting a little closer to that, but still, but still have a ways to go in acclimating people. But I, I, I think your point about education from an early age and introducing these concepts to people early on, so they think about them in their day to day life in a, in a different way, in a more meaningful way is, is definitely a, a place to start. So I was wondering if, if there's any other thoughts you had about, you know, what, what people should know about disability and sort of why we should care about it and, and why it's important not just to the disabled community, but also to just people in everyday life. You've said a lot about it, but I, I wanted to open it up to see if you had any other parting thoughts you wanted to share. Well, I think it's just important to keep in mind that everyone has something to offer and everyone has a different set of strengths and challenges. Um, and I don't necessarily like this whole idea of like, oh, we're all a little bit disabled or we all have we all have disabilities. I think we all have advantages and disadvantages in different environments. Everybody has something to offer and we shouldn't cast aside anyone as being too disabled or too different to be a part of whatever community it is that we're creating or whatever work it is that we're doing. So if you're up for it, Ariel, I'd love it if you could tell folks where they can find your writing and some of the work that you're doing. Uh, yeah, so that's easy. If you go to disabilitywisdom.com, just um, spelled like it sounds, disabilitywisdom.com, you will find a little bit about my services and then you will also find my blog if you go to the blog in the navigation bar at the top of the page. I've also included, of course, my contact information on that website and I admin a discussion group on Facebook called the Disability Wisdom Discussion Group. So you can find that by doing a Facebook search as well. And that's a, a forum for people with and without disabilities to talk about disability-related issues. Thanks, Arielle. That sounds great. And I hope our listeners will check out disabilitywisdom.com and also the Disability Wisdom Facebook group. I am a member and I find it tremendously rich in terms of the diversity of the people in the group and the discussions. I'll share all this information with everyone in the show notes. And thank you again, Arielle, for joining us. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for the first episode of Down to the Struts. If you want to learn more about the podcast and find future episodes, go to www.downtothestruts.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. I'd love to hear from you. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, feel free to email me at downtothestruts at gmail.com. A very special thanks to Anna Wu, Avery Annapole and Adrian Kung, and to all the friends, family, and supporters who have helped me along this journey. Without your advice and guidance, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you all again for listening and looking forward to our next episode so we can get back down to it. <music>